Do you ever feel like you're living in exile? Uh, I, I mean, does it ever seem like you now live in a very different place, even a different country than, say, uh, a year ago? Because, you know, our country and our world, they're radically different than even just six months ago. And recently I came across an article that highlighted a fascinating breakdown of the year 2020 so far. (laughs) Yeah, so far. So highlighting uh, this breakdown, uh, taking the year 2020 and putting it into perspective alongside some historic parallels. And here's, here's what I mean. So the article pointed out that we began 2020, much like 1974, with an impeachment crisis. Then the new year quickly became like 1918 with a global pandemic, which led us to become like 1929 uh, with an economic crash. And last month, we once again became like 1968 with uh, massive urban unrest in the face of uh, continued racial injustice and violence. And you're probably feeling uh, both exhausted and grieved. Uh, With with so much going on around us, uh, so much confusion and, and often feeling like chaos, So much suffering, uncertainty. And so we rightly grieve our broken world as we also long for Christ's return when he will make all things right. But one of the things that this intense season of uncertainty does for us, one thing that it does that's actually good is it reminds us of reality. It reminds us that the world in its present condition, its brokenness, its fallenness, that this is not our forever home, not in this state. In other words, we're reminded that we are living in exile. And so what do you do? What do you do when you're living in exile? Well, that's the question that we're going to consider today. And the first part of Jeremiah 29 gives us a good look at how God's people are to live in a broken world. And so if you want to turn to Jeremiah 29, and as you do so, let me just give you some quick background. And so at that time, the people of God had repeatedly refused to listen to the Lord. And so God chose Jeremiah, the prophet, chose him to give the people of Israel's southern kingdom one more chance. Turn from your wicked ways or be exiled to Babylon. And sadly, the latter is the result. And so in 586 B.C., Jerusalem was destroyed and the elite of Jewish society, the artisans, Uh, The professionals, the religious and civic leaders, these uh, Jewish elites, they were taken by force to Babylon. And the prophet Jeremiah received a word from God and wrote the exiles this letter that we're about to take a look at. And so let's uh, pray and then we'll read the first part 
of Jeremiah 29. So Lord, uh, we do thank you uh, this day. We thank you for your word. And we would ask now that you would help us to hear and to understand and to believe and to live out what you say as given to us in this letter. That we might more fully embrace who we are as your people and more passionately and compassionately engage the world around us with courage and grace. Amen. And so, Jeremiah 29, the letter to the exiles, uh, beginning with verse 1, and then I'll skip down to verses 4 to 7. Hear the word of God. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This is God's word. Well, I should quickly note that one of the things that Jeremiah is doing here in these few short verses is he is countering two major temptations that face God's people. That of cultural assimilation, becoming just like the world, and that of cultural rejection, uh, disengaging, withdrawing from the world. And here, through the prophet, God says, no, don't, don't assimilate to the culture, but don't reject the culture either. Uh, rather, embrace your distinctiveness as my people and also engage the culture to bless it. And that's it. That, that's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're supposed to do when we're living in exile. Embrace our distinctiveness as God's people and engage the culture to bless it. In verse 6, and God says, be who you are. Be who you are. You are my people. Don't lose your identity. Don't decrease in number, but rather increase. And as you do, embrace your identity as my people. Stand firm in your faith. Don't assimilate. Be who you are. In verse 5, God says, Be where you are. 
Be where you are. You're my people in a foreign land, yes. But establish roots. Settle down and invest yourselves there. Uh, Build houses, plant gardens. This is your home for now. Don't reject it. Be be where you are. And in verse 7, God says, Bless where you are through who you are. Bless where you are through who you are. In other words, bring good to this place precisely because you are my people. Reflect my goodness and glory to those around you. And as you seek good for yourselves, do so in such a way that it benefits the whole of society. Well, this is where we're going to focus our attention for the rest of the sermon. Because you see, the heart of this letter is verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Again, God says, bless where you are through who you are. One commentator explains, if God's people concentrate on bringing peace and well-being to the place where they live, then they will know peace and well-being through that place. That's what God promises. That's what he promises here. Seek the good of the place where you live and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its good you will find yours. And you know, it's easy for people uh, when they've lost or are losing their place of, of power and privilege, it's easy to take on a, a victim mentality and, and continually complain and, and criticize. But here God says, no, don't, don't do that. There's a better way. Uh, biblical scholar Derek Kidner writes, what emerges in the call of verse 7 is gloriously positive. In fact, it's a liberation from the paralyzing sullenness of inertia and self-pity. It's a call for God's people to set before themselves something to live for and something to give their captors through what they do and how they pray. So a few years ago, Heather came across an amazing story. Uh, back in World War II, when the, uh, the Japanese invaded China, there was one instance when the Japanese soldiers captured a school, and, and it was an all-girls school. And it turned out it was a Christian school. Uh, the students were MKs, they were missionary kids, and they were also girl guides, uh, girl scouts elsewhere. Well, of course, their internment camp you know, when they got there, the, the atmosphere was, was dark and depressing. Uh, no surprise there. But rather than give in to the paralyzing sullenness of inertia and self-pity, their teachers 
continued to teach them. And their teachers continued to encourage them. And these girls began to live with purpose. They found reasons to be thankful. They sought to bless others. In fact, they they wore their scout uniforms every day. They sang girl guide songs, earned merit badges, served one another and those around them, used good manners with each other, and even their guards. And guess what? That place was changed. Radically changed the atmosphere of it. Because through them there was now joy and encouragement, even in the midst of imprisonment. You see, they blessed where they were through who they were. They blessed their home away from home, despite the pain and suffering and injustice. And what these girl guides did was to bring tastes of shalom, tastes of shalom to the broken world of their concentration camp. Shalom. It's a word that we've uh, talked about here before from time to time. And that's the Hebrew word used here in in verse 7, where we have the English word welfare, if you're using the ESV. uh, Or in the NIV, it's the phrase peace and prosperity. And shalom is an incredibly rich Hebrew word. Uh, It goes way beyond what any one English word or phrase uh, could capture. Shalom is a a total flourishing in every dimension, every sphere of life. Economically, socially, physically, spiritually, culturally. And I love the way theologian Cornelius Plantinga describes it. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation. Injustice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight for everyone, everywhere. And like those girl guides in World War II, we're called to bring tastes of shalom to the broken world around us. We're called to make a difference, to be a blessing to others as we work, as we play, as we serve, as we study, and and whatever we're doing to bring God's grace and His justice and His peace to bear On everyone, everywhere. Again, we're called to embrace our distinctiveness as God's people and also to engage our culture to bless it. And and as we do that, as we take action, as we uh, work for the good of all people... Notice how we're supposed to do it. We're supposed to do that prayerfully. Note that it says we're called to pray, to depend on God, and thus work with God 
Not just for him, but work with him, working through his power in seeking to see his power on display around us. And so that's what we're going to end with. Prayer. Again, God says, seek the shalom of the place where you live and pray. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. Pray for shalom. And Jesus clarifies further in his Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew 5:44, where he says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray to the Lord on their behalf. Now, whether it's the Jewish exiles for the Babylonians, the Christian girl guides for their Japanese captors, or or us today for those who oppose the gospel, pray God's best into the world. While living in Vancouver, Canada, uh, one of Heather's and my closest friends was a woman named Karen Bishop, uh, now Karen Ellis. And as expats at the time, uh, living outside of our home country, living outside the U.S., we, of course, connected as fellow Americans. But also, Karen and I both have deep roots in the American South, uh, though our histories and our experiences are quite different. As we got to know each other and grew in trusting one another, uh, we began to talk a lot, to talk deeply about our racial differences, uh, the tensions, biases, misconceptions, challenges, and and so on. And and it was a great friendship, and, and I grew a lot through it. And I remember well... One, one Sunday morning, Karen said that, that she had something she wanted to share with me. And so she just came up and she opened a book, just held a book open right in front of me. And I could, I could immediately see that it wasn't a typeset book, but rather it was a collection of old, worn, faded, original writings of some kind that, that had been copied and preserved in their original form. I was curious, you know, what's this? And she said, read it. It looks different, I know. It's phonetic writing, but you can make it out. So I began reading, turning a couple of pages, and and said, it sounds like prayers. Karen said, yes, keep reading. Well, after a few more pages, I I said, these people seem to be praying out of a a place of, of real hardship. And yet also with a lot of hope. And they also seem to be praying God's blessing for some very cruel people. Well, Karen closed the book and showed me the the front cover and the description on the inside flap. And my eyes filled with tears. For what I had been reading were the prayers of black slaves asking God's blessing for their often brutal and oppressive white owners. And I was speechless 
Now, of course, there were other prayers. Of course, there were prayers against the injustice and cruelty. Of course, there were prayers for life and freedom. And of course, those prayers were rightly accompanied by action, as it always should be in the face of sin and cruelty. But the fact that there were also prayers of blessing, blessing for their oppressors, it was humbling and convicting. And so I began to wonder, how can I pray like that? How can we pray like that? In a culture that's so divided, how can we show the same courage and grace to work toward and pray for the shalom of all people? Well, we do it the same way they did. You see, it's a courage and grace that's found only when rooted in the cross of Christ. A faith and hope that's found only when it's rooted in a sure and certain future. It's resting in God's promise of Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Plans for your wholeness. And I will one day bring you home. Oh, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to send my son to seek and to pray for your good. And to secure your eternal shalom. By dying in your place on the cross. And friends, as we rest in that great truth, the Lord says to us, through the prophet Jeremiah, Seek the shalom of the place where you now live in exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its shalom you will find yours. Brothers and sisters, it's only through Jesus. It's only through Him and His all-sufficient grace that we are truly able to love others. To work toward and pray for the shalom of all people. And so look to him and live for his glory. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for giving yourself for us, for seeking and, and praying for our good. And, and we, we pray now 
that you would do a work in us, continue to work in us by the power of your Spirit. Enable us to give of ourselves for the good of others, to truly work toward and pray for the shalom of the place and people where we live. Amen.